Believe from the Heart podcast is sponsored by Mitel Networks, a Canadian-based telecommunications company with offices all around the world. Mitel's goal is to create a company culture that inspires courage, empathy, and kindness, and it seeks to be part of the global movement to build humane workplaces where people want to come and do great work. Mitel is also very proud to be the sole sponsor of this podcast. If you'd like to learn more about them, find them at mitel.com forward slash Mark. Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. I hope by now that you know I handpick every guest we bring you, all with the intention of broadening your leadership mindset and effectiveness. And as I also hope you've noticed, most of our guests aren't leadership gurus at all so much as they are uncommonly wise and informed on some meaningful aspect of excelling in life and in managing people, including ourselves. So today we're going to be discussing time management, but not in a way most traditionally done. When we think about the time management books we've all read, they were all written for the purpose of helping us create the perfect schedule or productivity method for cranking through as many items on our to-do list as we could possibly get through. And truth be told, most of those techniques we learned ended up making rather insignificant improvements in our lives. My guest today is Oliver Berkman, an award-winning writer for The Guardian whose massive bestseller is called 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. And it was Oliver who one day did the math many of us would choose to avoid, and he calculated that if we're lucky enough to live until we're 80, all we get here on the planet is 4,000 weeks. And tied to this sobering fact of life, he argues, time management is all life is. While we may be happy on days when we clear out all the email messages we've received, accomplishments like these seem rather trivial when we consider the brevity of life and how little time we have to make our own dent in the universe. So today, we're going to dig into the ways we can take the knowledge of our own mortality and put it to the most positive use in the daily choices we make about how we spend our time. And at a moment when we're all evaluating our goals, dreams, and aspirations, Oliver joins us to provide us with extraordinary insight on how we can best use what's left of our own 4,000 weeks. Oliver's book is highly provocative, and I'm absolutely certain this conversation with him will be very much the same. And with that, welcome to the podcast, Oliver. Thank you very much for inviting me. Well, thanks for doing it. You're across the pond, and I've been looking forward to this conversation. I had a kind of a big birthday myself, and so this topic has been particularly interesting to me. <laughs> well, Oliver, let me just first reassure my audience that your book is anything but a traditional time management manual. Instead, it's several hundred pages of very insightful reminders that our lives, even if we make it to age 80, aren't very long at all. And so consequently, the best time management advice of all proves to be our need to confront how little time we have here on planet Earth. So I'm not so sure you actually addressed this in your book, except to say that it's a topic that's been on your mind. But what inspired you to do the math, figure out that 4,000 weeks is pretty much all we get? and then go on to write this book. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, the doing the math part, I actually don't remember what the sort of initial prompt was, but the broader question of, you know, why was I so fixated on this topic and why did I want to try to think through my thoughts about our finite time and what to do about it? I mean, that is absolutely a question of a sort of a personal fixation that I sort of needed to work out for myself. I do write in the book about being a sort of a productivity geek, as mm -hmm. I call it, you know, somebody really obsessed with trying to find the perfect time management system and get more and more and more done and become ever more efficient and optimized. And I think in hindsight, that just to be a bit treat as a therapist for a moment, I think that was <laughs> part of an effort to sort of feel like I was in control of life in a way that I wasn't. And as I now think one probably can't ever be to sort of avoid the scariness of life in certain ways to try to achieve a kind of emotional invulnerability or something that I think many people, perhaps especially it's men, I don't know, in, in their sort of young adulthood are um, concerned to try to achieve. So definitely there was a sort of a the motivating factor here for this whole book was like, okay, all my attempts to use time in what feels like a wise way to accomplish things and to feel confident about where I was headed and all the rest of it, they don't seem to have worked. 
many years in. So maybe it's time to re-examine the premises. I think it's better. I think books are more effective when the author has a deep connection to it. So it's not to say that somebody couldn't spend two years writing a book on a topic and not being interested in it. But when it's consuming and something that's really driving your your life in a way, I think it comes out better in terms of how the book reads. And so I asked that question and you gave me exactly what I was looking for in terms of the answers. <laughs> it's also punctuating something that I think we lose sight of, which is this idea that control in life is a complete illusion. And so much of what we do from a time management standpoint is to impose the myth that we are in control. So it always makes me laugh when people go, well, I, I think I have a good control over this. I'm like, no, you really don't. <laughs> uh, which, <laughs> you know, which, which makes me ask you this question, which is like, your book has been really, really successful. And I think it's successful for all the right reasons, which meaning that it's not a traditional time management book. It's more of a philosophical questioning book. And I'm wondering if you think that you have been goosed, that's an American term, meaning like you've gotten a benefit of two-year pandemic where people are thinking much more about their lives. Yeah, I mean, it was no strategy involved in this but because the book <laughs> planning for a pandemic you mean yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i mean the, I, I sold the proposal for this book long before the pandemic and then had to sort of ask for multiple extensions mainly because i became a father so a couple of years there were completely didn't happen from the point of view of advancing with major work projects so it was really good fortune but I did finish writing the book in lockdown and at the beginning of the pandemic in New York City and where we lived then and I think that by sheer good fortune yes it has come out at a time when people are in a sort of reflective mode for thinking about these kinds of things and when also they've had this kind of huge shock to the system and it's sort of enforced change in how one lives Really, regardless of what you think about the ways in which the world has responded to COVID, you can't deny that, that a lot of things shifted. And that, I think, just tends to lead people to naturally wonder, like, well, what other things could shift? What could I change in my life? And clearly, we don't always have to commute to an office every day because the office workers of the world stopped doing so for at least a few weeks and in some places much longer than that. So, you know, what are the possibilities here? Yeah, I mean, we just had another four and a half million American workers quit their jobs last month. And this has been a trend that's been going on for a full year. I mean, that's an all-time record. So mm. the contemplation of what is happening in my life and where do I want to spend my time, I think, is a profoundly important question that people are asking themselves. And so let's dig into your book. It didn't take me long to realize in reading that you are extremely well-read. And so it made me curious about your reading habits. So independent of the time when you're diapering babies, <laughs> you know, your life gets changed. But in the pre-baby time and now perhaps in the time when things are a little more settled, like, do you read specifically as research? Is that your motivation? And is it possible that through your reading of like ancient philosophers and spiritual teachers and psychologists, these are the people that I recognized, that the theme of your book actually presented itself even more, like you're cobbling together all these ideas and all of a sudden you're realizing they're all talking about time management, or they're all talking about the shortness of life. Is that how this happened? Yeah, in a way, I had this great good fortune to write this short weekly column for the Guardian newspaper for many years, which was called This Column Will Change Your Life. <laughs> Originally, that title was completely sarcastic. <laughs> I think probably my experience of writing it over the years was to become slightly more sincere and earnest about self-help and personal development than I had started out. So maybe by the end, I really did think I could change people's lives in some minor way. But that was really just a wonderful experimental ground for encountering ideas, working them up into short pieces, and then gradually seeing patterns emerge, seeing connections emerge. And I think that's what happened in terms of this book. You begin to see all the ways in which people from a wide, disparate, different kinds of tradition could be seen as talking about time management. I mean, a slightly more mercenary way of thinking about it, I suppose, is just that both the books I've written, The Antidote, which I wrote in 2012 about 
problems with positive thinking. Both of these, they could be called my philosophy of life, except that no one would buy them then, right? right. So it's, like, it's, um, it's really just a question of finding a lens or a sort of a, I guess, a sort of washing line on which to hang mm-hmm. all the pieces that you've collected. And I think my sort of argument about time management ended up being pretty coherent in 4,000 weeks. But on the other hand, you know, what isn't time management? You know, I mean, if you're going to define this broadly enough, then you can sort of write about anything. And I think in some ways, my whole career as a journalist and a writer has been a case of trying to find ways to not specialize and to find, you know, excuses to write about things from a very broad perspective, picking quotations from philosophers, spiritual teachers, and then, you know, pop stars and everybody, because I I kind of really like that way of working where you're sort of finding the connections between something that Heidegger said and something that Danielle Steele said or something, you know. I do too. I totally agree with you. You didn't quote Daniel Steele in your book, as far as I recall. So I talked about her work habits, which are extremely intense and possibly far too intense. But yeah, you know, in the big picture, our lives are very short. That would be one major takeaway from your book. So you say that limited time isn't our real problem. It's that we've unwittingly inherited and feel pressured to live by a troublesome set of ideas about how to use our limited time, all of which are pretty much guaranteed to make things worse. So maybe the Daniel Steele approach. But tell us <laughs> tell us what you mean. Sure. I mean, I think the basic idea here is we have very little time when you think about it in terms of 4,000 weeks or something. But there's something a little odd about saying that we have very little time because the obvious question is like, you know, compared to what? You might never have been born. From that perspective, the time that you have is vast and wonderful. So clearly, the real problem, I think, is not some specific amount of time, like it would all be fine if we could have lives that were three times as long or something. But that we sort of systematically ask more of our time than it can give. And we try, above all, to sort of get into a position of feeling like we're in control of it, feeling like we're on top of everything, feeling like we are the masters of our time in an environment, especially in the modern world, where, in fact, we are just swimming in these infinity pools, right, of infinite possible opportunities we could follow, infinite emails we can receive, infinite demands and obligations that can be felt by us. So we're in this sort of situation of being incredibly limited, facing these kind of infinite supplies of things and imagining that through enough self-discipline and energy and not getting sleep and finding the right productivity techniques, we could somehow get our arms around it all. And not only is that impossible and frustrating because, you know, that's how math works. It's not, you know, you can't get your arms around an infinite amount of things, but it actually really, I think, depletes our capacities to accomplish impressive things and worthwhile things and meaningful things when we are engaged in this futile struggle to become sort of super efficient and super optimized and do an infinite amount. There are all sorts of reasons we can talk in more detail if you want, but there are all sorts of reasons why pursuing that goal will actually lead you to not even get round to a few of the most important things in your life, to sort of systematically postpone projects that you care about the most. Let's go there because I want to dig into anyway this notion of being super optimized. <laughs> you know, I'm so busy. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. And we take a lot of pride in that. And what you're just hinting at is that it sort of limits us or prevents us from doing the things that are really going to matter in our lives. Yeah. So go there. Well, one example, and then maybe we can zoom out to the sort of principles behind it. But one really obvious example that I'm sure many of your listeners will have encountered is this thing that I've given the name in my writing, the importance trap, right? This idea that if some project really matters to you, or a particular email you want to write to someone is the one that like, you know, you want to give it your time and attention and really get into it or anything like that. It's incredibly tempting to tell yourself that you can't do it right now because you really need time and focus and you need to be refreshed and all the rest of it. And what you're going to do in the meantime is clear the decks and that what you need to do is get out of the way all these other unimportant things, these sort of open loops that are tugging at your attention, deal with them all. And then you're going to have this kind of expanse of time later on to turn to what matters the most. But in fact, what happens is 
The decks are never clear because they are infinite, essentially. For various reasons, getting really good at processing smaller tasks just generates more small tasks. If you get really, really good at handling email at a very fast tempo, what happens is you get much more email because you're replying to people and they're replying to you. And so it expands as a result of the attention that you're giving to it. And more to the point, you know, if you operate on the premise that you can basically do everything, that you don't have to make really tough choices about what to spend time on and what not to spend time on, then you're much more likely to say yes to kind of any new thing that crosses your radar, right? Because you're not going to properly go through that process of saying like, well, okay, if I do this, what am I not going to do as a result of doing this? And so you sort of systematically take on more and more stuff, take on lower quality stuff, because it's more likely to be just things that other people would quite like you to do rather than necessarily the things that are the best use of your time. And endlessly postpone (laughs) the day when you sit down and work on the things that you know you care about the most. So are you sort of a disciple of the Stephen Covey important but not urgent quadrant two, if I remember correctly? Is that kind of where you're urging people to spend their time? Yeah. I mean, I think that people drive themselves a bit crazy trying to imagine that they can resist urgency to the degree that you see some people trying to do it. I think you have to sort of find a balance for these things. But a very simple, you know, something I try really hard to do in my own life and that reflects the specific timing even of this conversation we're having now is to keep mornings as free as I possibly can, my mornings free of appointments of any kind so that I can sort of do three solid hours on the things that I'm working on that really need my solo focused attention. And then, sure, absolutely, it's other people's requests. It's things that need urgent attention. This is all part of life. I don't want to be a recluse. It wouldn't be professionally useful for me to be a recluse. And you can't control life enough to eliminate the urgent. But you can, I think, just sort of insert these sort of chunks of time that come first, just literally earlier in the day or something like that. If you were a manager, would you apply that to managing your team? So in other words, Would you give your team the freedom to get their most important work done in the mornings and then have your meetings in the afternoons if you're having meetings? I think I would try very hard to, yes, and to the extent that I could just decide on a meeting schedule for other people, I would would do it that way around. It's a little bit more complicated because, of course, it's not a given that any specific team member is going to do their best focused solitary work in the morning. I think it's much more common that people are better at it in that way. And that in any case, you know, it's once the other stuff starts to happen in the day, you've lost the opportunity for that kind of focus. So it probably is best to have it in the morning. I think another way in which I would sort of implement this if I was in that management position would be that the kind of control that I argue we should learn to sort of let go of trying to seek over our own time, this kind of sense that we can be on top of everything and the way in which that stops us actually just focusing on some things that matter and allowing other things to be in some sense out of control while we do that. That's something that applies as well to the ways in which managers seek to be in control of teams and the ways in which people higher up in organizations sort of want to feel like they are in the driving seat, that they know what is happening around the organization at any given moment. I think there's a really strong case for trying to ease up on that too. I'm not under any illusions that it can be sort of abandoned entirely, but I think that a lot of that is counterproductive probably in some organizations. I think this is what people are rebelling against right now is that the need for some managers to retain that control against two years, you know, many, many months, let's say, of experience of having the freedom to do your work Mm -hmm. when you want to do your work. And so, and I think this is also playing into why so many people are leaving their jobs is like, they're just repelled by that. Like, I can't be managed that way anymore. I can't not have the kinds of freedom that I had before. And I did my work well. So, you know, why are you suddenly resuming this micromanagement or at least command and control or at least, you know, where are you on this? We need to have a meeting at nine o'clock so everybody's updated, all that kind of gamesmanship. Are you in the rest of your work and perhaps even in researching this, seeing an unwinding of that? Like, do you think it's just naturally going to happen? 
I mean, I think everything is up for grabs. And I think there's a real risk in the way that we come back from the pandemic of sort of getting the worst of both worlds. A hybrid working may be the shape of the future, for example, but like I can certainly see an outcome here where you get the the boundarylessness and the isolation of homework combined with the endless interruptions and uh, tedious commuting of, of office work and you sort of manage somehow to destroy both that there's you know not enough time to do the work that you need to do in either case and that it all sort of leaks into everything else and blah 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 I don't know what the answer is I am pretty sure that whatever it is it will involve two things firstly yes a certain measure of being able to hold plans loosely, both personal plans and sort of those that happen on an organizational level, being able to sort of really think clearly about how you want to plan your day or your priorities you want to focus on in a given quarter or something like that, not to sort of slack off on them, but then not to sort of bear down so hard on needing to make reality conform to them. I don't know if I'm making that distinction clear, but I think it's not about sort of drifting and being um, aimless. It's about having a direction and setting an intention but then being sort of really responsive to what happens to that plan when it encounters reality. And then I think the other part of it is this idea that has been called paying yourself first with time, right? Adopting an approach to prioritization that says like, what we're going to do is we're going to choose one or two things that really matter the most, and we're definitely going to give them time. And then to some extent, we're going to have to let the chips fall where they fall when it comes to other things. So that's sort of baked into the ideas that I'm outlining here, I think. I think that there's certainly a role for sort of being very conscious about saying, well, this thing and this thing are not going to get actioned or implemented this week, this month, this year, because I'm going to focus on these priorities instead. And understanding that prioritization means deciding what not to focus on as well as what to focus on. It's not a sort of cunning and sneaky way to get to do everything through the sheer intricacy of your time management system or something, but also that there will be some rough edges that you won't be able to be exactly certain about how other things are going to unfold if what you're mainly doing is is just making time for the top priorities. This is actually something that I wanted to talk to you about and just connect a couple dots here. One is you mentioned this language of infinity pools. I'm coincidentally reading a book that's written by three senior partners at McKinsey and they did a deep dive into like who are the most successful effective CEOs in you know fortune 500 yeah. companies and then they identified who they are and then they identified their behaviors and this idea that prioritization means pushing something aside and saying we're we're just not going <laughs> to spend a lot of time yeah. on that that came up as a common denominator of the CEO. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And but then in your book, you once again quote a philosopher, Martin Heidegger, and he said that living an authentic life means facing up to the fact that as we make choices about how to live our life, we close ourselves off to so many others. And this is something that I've been very much aware of. I have a former friend from college that spent his life in indecision. Mm -hmm. You know, like you go to a restaurant and someone would have steak, someone would have fish, he would order the chicken. And as soon as the chicken would come, he'd say, oh, I should have gotten the steak or I should have gotten the fish. And he applied that kind of unwillingness to pin down a decision because everything seemed so appealing mm -hmm. to him. And so tell us how to make peace with this and not later regret the choice. In other words, if I decide, okay, I'm happy in this company and I'm working in, in a bank and I'm happy being a banker, well, there's a million other things that I'm not doing. And so how do I keep from longing when I see somebody is doing something really well in another industry or something else that I may have had talent to do? Well, yes. What a question. I mean, on one hand, you probably don't keep from longing and regretting entirely. I think that probably is just an element of the human experience. But I think that the big insight for me here when it comes to sort of missing out on things is to see that our situation means that missing out on a huge amount of things is absolutely unavoidable. But this is always my sort of move here. I want to say, here's a problem. 
But the fact is you haven't actually seen that the problem is even bigger than you thought it was. And when you see that the problem is as big as it really is, it actually stops being a problem because it is just a completely inescapable part of the sort of tragic situation of being a human. <laughs> it's not something you can be expected to solve. It's not something there is some technique out there that can eradicate. And actually, that is really liberating because then you see, oh, well, it's silly to fear missing out on things because missing out on things is inevitable. You don't need to sort of beat yourself up about like, was there another career path that would have been really meaningful to me? Because like, there definitely was. There definitely were probably several. <laughs> and there's there's mm -hmm. liberation in that. Now, it doesn't mean you're not going to change careers, right? It doesn't mean that people don't find themselves mm -hmm. in situations where something else would offer them more meaning. But it means you don't have to be haunted by that notion that that just because there's something that matters or that would matter that you're not giving your time to. I mean, yes, of course there is. There are a very large number of things that matter that would be a legitimate use of your time that you're not going to get to do. And I find that really freeing. I think there's even a, a step beyond it being freeing. It's almost a kind of a an assertion of a way of finding more meaning in the things that you do. I mean, the example I always give, but I think it's true, is that if I turn down some opportunity to go and hang out with my friends so that I can spend the afternoon with my son, there's all the inverse of that, which has happened. But, you know, there's something about the fact that I'm giving that up, what I'm giving up, that actually lends greater value to what I end up doing. The stakes were high. It wasn't just that I was going to do nothing at all, but instead I decided to do this, is that I had to make a sacrifice. And that can lend, I think, an extra layer of meaning to the things that people do. I agree with you. This is interesting to me. So I mentioned Stephen Covey earlier. He talks about big rocks. And it's interesting because I'm working with a company right now in helping them develop their strategic plans. I've been doing this several years. And where they land are the big rocks. That's their takeaway. So you call big rocks the most important things in our lives and that small rocks are the insignificant things in our lives. So tell us how Covey sets this up because you don't agree with them. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, I don't want to I don't want to beat up on Covey too much because actually in the original version of this, it was a little bit less bad than it tends to go around. But the basic idea that has gone down in history from this idea, right, which has somebody, a professor or somebody bringing a glass jar into the classroom and he has some big rocks, he has pebbles and sand and he says, okay, the challenge is how do you fit it all into the jar? And if you put the sand or the pebbles in first, you can't fit the big rocks in. But if you put the big rocks in first, then the pebbles and the sand fit around them. Moral of the story, make time for the things that matter the most first, and then you'll get them all done. Now, I think you do have to make time for the things that matter the most first, as I was just saying before. But the sort of dishonesty in this, in this parable is obviously that the professor has only brought enough big rocks into the classroom that, as he knows, can fit into the jar, I think that this parable holds out the thought that there is a way of making space for all the big rocks that matter. And I want to make the point that there's just no reason to assume the set of things that feel like they really matter to you is going to be small enough to fit into the time that you have or the capacities that your organization has. In fact, there's lots of good reasons to believe that it definitely won't fit. There are just too many big rocks. And if you imagine a different version of this parable where the teacher brings in far more rocks than can possibly fit into the jar, then we're going to see the real problem here, which is choosing which big rocks to focus on and having the sort of guts or the anxiety tolerance or something to neglect some others. You know, you come across this as well in this self-help advice about how important it is to learn to say no. And that's true. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people, I think, internalize that as if it means you've got to find ways to say no to all the things you don't want to do. And then you can just focus on the things you do want to do. But I quote Elizabeth Gilbert in my book, pointing out that like, no, it's harder than that. You've got to say no to lots of things that you do want to do, things that you genuinely want to do, things that would be totally worthwhile uses of your time in and of themselves, because there are just more of those than anyone is going to have time for. And in today's world, we're going to hear about many more of them, too, because of the way that digital connectivity works. So I think it's just a question of seeing that sacrifice means sacrifice. It doesn't mean 
with a really clever scheme, you can avoid making sacrifices. Well, this isn't really a time management question, but do you have any advice on how to, so you come into a room and you've got more rocks than will fit in the jar and you look at yourself and you realize, wait a minute, like take them all out. (laughs) Now I have to reprioritize. Okay, so this one's number one, this one's number two. And now you have like five rocks left over and only one of them's going to fit. Any advice on how to decide? Yeah, I mean, I think there are ways to, There are definitely ways to connect to sort of which projects are the most meaningful to you. And I mentioned, for example, in the book, this question that the psychotherapist James Hollis advises about asking whether a given experience or project will enlarge me or diminish me. Now, this is in personal context more perhaps than a business context, but this is a good example of asking whether something you're doing serves your growth as a person. And you can imagine a parallel there, you know, is this something that will help this business develop into what it should be? Is it something that will sort of, is it one of those things that will make future things easier? Or is it just a nice to have something Mm -hmm. that it would be sort of nice to be able to say you did, but that didn't contribute to growth? However, you define that not necessarily financial growth. What I really want to say, though, is that, and this is something you might have encountered, goes by the name of Fredkin's paradox, I believe, but that if you have to choose between five things and they all really do count and they are all really important and any one of them would be a perfectly good contender for the one to do first or the one to really give your attention to, then the blunt truth is that it kind of doesn't matter which one you pick, right? Because the more that they are all truly valid uses of your time, then the less there is to distinguish between them. And if there are kind of four things that your organization could focus on in the next quarter and they would all really move the needle and all count and they're all doable now, but you can only focus on one of them, then almost rolling a dice is as good a a prioritization system as any because, you know, you're going to be using your time well, whichever direction you go in, and you're going to be tolerating the fact that you're not doing other important things, whichever direction you go in. I like that. You do actually have real-time management <laughs> ideas in your book, and and they have really great relevance to leadership. So I want to take them one at a time here and have you discuss them. So the first one is your assertion that we should spend less time objecting to what's happening to us and devote more attention to what is happening. So this sounds a little philosophical. Tell us what you mean. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this is just sort of, I feel like it's the real meaning of the idea of acceptance. Acceptance means, in the truest sort of sense of the term, not resigning yourself to the way things are and learning to tolerate mediocrity or worse, but accepting that they are as they are. And I think that sounds silly, but I think we do invest an awful lot of energy in sort of trying to deny that things are as they are, trying to not really think about the situation that we are in, or kind of resenting it and objecting to it and saying that it should not be happening when in fact it is happening. And so what I'm talking about there is seeing the absurdity of that and letting go of the idea that something that is happening should not be happening. And understanding that that is not the same as saying like it should keep happening. Absolutely not. But it is actually the precondition of changing things, I think, changing your circumstances in any way to sort of fully internalize that they are indeed happening. I'm glad we're talking about this because it has great implications to leadership, which is you've got a problem. And, you know, it's easy to shake our fist at the gods and say, why didn't I meet my goal? Or why is this person quitting? Or whatever Mm. it is that's frustrating us. And as you eloquently just said, the idea that if we accept what is, that puts you in the state of mind to then say, what do we do about it? And how do we move to a different place? Yeah. And it's hard to make that instinctively. Like it's hard to go, hey, boss, I'm quitting. Okay. Well, you know, it's going to be, you're my number one guy and I don't know what I'm going to do without you, but I'm going to figure it out. That's hard to do when it's your number, right? But nevertheless, as you talked earlier about all the books you've read and the patterns that emerge, I read a lot. I read all of my guest books. So I'm reading at least a couple of books a week. And I have found that this idea of accepting what is it has emerged more recently as an idea in all kinds of books. So it seems like people are figuring this out, that it's like fighting what's happening, resisting what's happening 
is so limiting in terms of the best response to difficult times in life. Yeah, I think it's absolutely. I mean, I think it is ancient wisdom, but I think we probably are rediscovering it because I think that probably one goes through periods, economic periods of the economy, periods of history and politics, where it kind of, you can trick yourself into thinking that you're not sort of encountering certain limitations, limitations of time and capacity, limitations of the natural environment, all sorts of other things. And then there are the times when you can't, when you sort of have to face the fact that what was true all along, that actually we're, we are these sort of deeply limited humans in a deeply limited context. And our best hope for doing the most we can is to acknowledge the situation we're in rather than try to deny it. So yeah, I think these ideas do sort of have their seasons. I'm noticing one, a similar one with the idea of of limits and limitation, which I think amounts to the same thing, right? It amounts to sort of not pretending. What kind of limits? Well, of any kind, right? Certainly the limits of personal stamina and time when it comes to the problem of burnout and overwhelm. But I think, you know, the limitations of the natural environment as a sort of ecological argument are, and the way that we sort of have proceeded for so long as if there aren't those limitations. I think that's a fascinating aspect to it as well. The limitations of our knowledge about the future and about the fact that history seems to deliver so many strange and unusual and unexpected shocks these last years that it drives home to you that, you know, actually we weren't sort of complacently in the driving seat of history at all. If we had been, then we would have seen these things coming. So in all sorts of different ways, I think coming back down to the truth of that is really worthwhile. Well, that brings me to the second one, which is something we sort of talked about, but just completely aligns to what you just said, which is the illusion of control. So, you know, most of us want certainty all the time about what's to come in our lives. Ha ha. (laughs) 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 And we have this belief that we can be in control. And then when we're not in control, we're going back to this, what we talked about, accepting what is. It's like, well, this isn't going the way I want it to. And so I'm mad as hell. I think it explains a lot of the anger that we're seeing in society right now is that, right. you know, people aren't owning up to the fact that you weren't in control in the first place, like right. the ace in the hole, always. So right. how are we better off reframing the idea of certainty from your point of view? Well, I think it's not about saying that we have to just throw up our hands. It's not about saying that we have no power to plan anything successfully and so therefore we should just give up. It is firstly, as I quote, Joseph Goldstein, the meditation teacher in my book, saying that what we forget is that a plan is just a thought, right? A plan is a statement of our present moment intentions. It arises in the present. It's a statement of the things we would like to happen. It can be a really useful navigational tool for making decisions in the moment about what is the wisest thing to do. But what it isn't is a way of sort of throwing down control over the future and making it conform to our intentions. And I think that's one example of a kind of acceptance that has this effect of, I mean, I'm sort of slightly my own personal custom usage of these words, but I kind of think of this in terms of giving up control in order to acquire agency. So it's like you give up this idea that you can be the dictator over reality, let alone over the future. And it's in that act of giving that up that you step into the sort of true influence, true agency and power that you have over it. Because the the dictator, the sort of impotent dictator who's sort of sitting high on a throne, screaming at reality to do things, and reality is going its own way, has no agency. The person who's like down on the ground, accepting the way that things are currently, and therefore using whatever room for maneuver they have and whatever influence they have, that's the person who's going to get things done. I agree. Great. And finally, you want to steer us away from what you call a future chasing mindset. What does that mean? Right. I mean, I think anyone who sort of wants to do cool stuff with their careers or their lives is inevitably at risk of this situation where you end up judging every moment of your life for it in terms of its future benefits, right? Are you on track to where you want to get? Did you make good use of this afternoon for your goals. And then you get into this mode of feeling that the present is sort of secondary to the future, that you're just trying to get through the present to get to these future victories, or that everything's going to be fine, or suddenly like real life is going to begin 
at some point in the future when you get a promotion or when you finally get on top of your email or when you finally have kids or when the kids leave home or, you know, when you retire, it can go on forever and ever. And that's really the point, right? The future is always in the future. And I'm not suggesting that we just become sort of hippie meditator people all day long and just sort of embrace the moment. If you can do it, great, but I can't. It's just a pitfall of the mindset that wants to build things and wants to get places and wants to sort of execute things is that you end up living exclusively in the future. Future never arrives because it's always still in the future. And then you have sort of never experienced the fullness of the meaning of life in the very moment itself. So it's something to be just aware of. It's something that should make you balance those kinds of activities with some other activities. This is why I argue in the book that people should have hobbies, even though it's so embarrassing and unfashionable these days and feels like slacking off somehow to have a hobby. And how you should ask of the work that you do, not only is it leading to something that you want to create, which is really important, but is the process of doing it more often than not something in which you can take pleasure in itself. Marshall Goldsmith was on the podcast recently, and he calls this, I'll be happy when thinking. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I agree. And it's easy to do, you know, particularly because you think, oh, you know, I'm making a sacrifice to do this. And so when the sacrifice is over and I've got the prize, the brass ring, that's when things are going to really happen for me. And so just to kind of pin it down, you're saying, enjoy the journey. Right. I'm saying like, this is real life right now. You know, the real life is not coming later. This is it. By all means, use this time to build things and create better futures and for yourself and for other people. Absolutely. But don't fall for this notion that like, this is just a preliminary or a dress rehearsal, because then you're never going to get to the main event. I don't know how old you are, but do you think that there's a certain point in time? Like, I don't think that I could have related to any of this when I was 10, 15, 20, even maybe 25. At some point, you start to become aware that, whoa, like, you know, this is happening faster than I ever imagined it would. Yeah, totally. Yes, right. There's an element of this, which I mean, you're you're being much more polite than putting it this way. But there's an element of this, which is like, you know, midlife crisis book. And then I'm uh, 46. I have to think about that now. But I mean, what I hope I've done in the book is package some of these these lessons and insights in a way that almost anybody at most ages can get some value from. But I do think that it's hard, maybe before you're in your 30s, let's say, to really internalize the thought that life isn't a sort of eternal upward progress towards ever greater heights that goes on for ever and ever and ever. Carl Jung, who sort of did all the theorizing on midlife crises and things like that, sort of argued that midlife could happen anytime from your early 30s to your late 60s. And I think that is true. Based on your mindset or? Well, based on, yeah, just based on when you, you know, if you're lucky, it'll happen sooner rather than later. But just when you get to this point where certain methods of living and working that had served you well kind of start to stop working. And everything is often sort of fine on the outside, but there's something missing or your your usual way of doing things seems to not carry on being so effective. And I think what's happening there is usually that people are realizing that on some level they were chasing something that isn't in tune with real human reality. And I think it has lots of benefits, right? There's probably a lot of benefits in believing at certain stages in your life that you can do limitless, infinite, impossible things. But there is also a time when for recognizing that that sort of pursued endlessly until the end of your life leads you to a place where you've kind of missed the point of life somehow. So yeah, I'm always fascinated. I have got feedback from people who, as far as I can tell, are really young, like teenagers and people about this kind of book and very positive usually. And that sort of amazes me. I think those people are probably wiser than I was Mm -hmm. at that age. And then the other thing that happens occasionally is someone says like, who's probably 40s, 50s, says like, I've bought this book for my for my son who's just going off to college because he really needs it. And I'm like, I'm really grateful for the purchase. But I think if I had been your son at that age, I'd have been like, Dad, I'm not interested in this book. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. I, yeah, I gave my son all the places you'll go when he graduated from high school. And I, I still don't think he's read it. He's out of college now and has a kid, has some children. So, yeah, when the student is ready. But at least he tried. Yes, exactly. Just to kind of punctuate this. This is why I was looking forward to this conversation, because I think it's really important. You don't want to 
get to late in life and, you know, I had Daniel Pink on recently and we were talking about regrets. And mm. one of the big regrets people have is not doing the things that they thought that they should have done in their life and put it off into a future where it became impossible to do it. So yes. all these little strands, you know, connect to each other. Everyone, let's take a very quick break here and we're going to return with the heartbeat round. A quick reminder that Mitel Networks is this podcast's sole sponsor because it fully embraces our message of empathy, compassion, and caring as a means to elevating workplace leadership all around the world. Mitel also loves the upcoming Heartbeat Round segment and invites you to learn more about them at mitel.com forward slash mark. Oliver, we have a, a podcast tradition where we take a break from our discussion and move to what we cleverly call the heartbeat round. And what I'd like to do is ask you a dozen or so questions that relate more to your personal interests. The whole idea is just to get to know you a little bit better. But this time, the goal is to answer them quickly, instinctively, in a heartbeat. You willing? I'll do my best. All right, here we go. Your favorite time of the day? Early morning. One profound way writing this book changed you? Uh, it helped me live into this philosophy of time instead of just thinking about it. The trait you think has been most vital to your personal success? A, a strange willingness to take risks that doesn't really seem compatible with my personality, but apparently I do it when I need to do it. Truly practical but important piece of time management advice. Reflect on how you would do things differently if you truly knew in the depths of your souls, into your bones, that there was always going to be too much to do. I know that feels like a thought experiment, but for me, it's very practical because if you can really get that perspective, it changes a lot. Down to your bones. A book that should be required reading for every human. Uh, Finding Meaning in the Second Half of Life by James Hollis, but it shouldn't be required until, you know, mid-30s at the youngest. One person dead or alive you'd like to have dinner with? Why am I finding that question hard to answer? You like to eat alone? <laughs> <laughs> um, let me go for uh, Dogen, the founder of one of the schools of Zen, whose work I've become obsessed with recently. I'd like to pick his brains on a few things. Is that how you pronounce it? Dogen? I believe so. I've seen it. Mm -hmm. One thing you hope to see change in the world? Uh I would like us to get better at understanding the emotional logic of why people we hate or distrust or disagree with do what they do and think what they think. Quality that derails the most leadership careers? Uh, probably just some basic form of egotism, egocentrism, the need to be in total control of things that you can't be in total control of. Your synonym for the word heart? Uh Soul, probably. That's not a very original answer, but maybe non-original answers are, are true sometimes. Want to know the funny thing about that is that no one had said it before until a recent <laughs> guest, and I was like, soul? And now you've said it. was like it came as a surprise, you know? Done like almost 90 podcasts, and no one has ever said it. Now it came up again. Amazing. One subject you think all leaders would be wise to bone up on? Uh, psychotherapy. Prediction about the future, you're pretty certain it's going to come true. Um, it won't be as bad as people fear. Oh, that's good. I actually had a guest on who said that <laughs> it's going to end really badly. <laughs> <laughs> well, it depends. I'm just such a catastrophist. I, it's going to be less bad than I think. Could you're still the, be really you're bad. You're the antidote to Maria Konnikova. <laughs> oh, I, I agree with her on so much as well. <laughs> <laughs> the trait you admire most in other people. A true sense of humor about themselves. What's currently ranking number one on your bucket list? That's difficult because I'm recently moved to this beautiful part of the country and I just like what I want to do is is go hiking in this area and it's what I do do. So um, I want to extend this to going swimming, uh, to doing wild swimming in very cold water. So that's my next stage of mm -hmm. um, literal immersion in this landscape in Yorkshire, in the north of England. Wow. <laughs> Please don't invite me. <laughs> I hate cold water. <laughs> A cultural value every organization should have. I would say forgiveness. Mm. Love that. An author of any genre who's had the most influence in your life. The most. Wow. Or great. Yeah, well, James Hollis, who I mentioned, is certainly right up there. He's a Jungian psychotherapist and a great writer. 
And let's see, I would throw in there as well. Um, Daniel Steele. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say that Anne Lamott's book on writing, oh, Bird by Bird, which, Bird by Bird, which everyone loves, I know. Mm-hmm. It's not an original choice, but that made a, big, made a big impression on me as well. Me too. I actually saw her. She came to where I live. She spoke at the bookstore where I go, and I just looked her in the eye and said, you have no idea how helpful that was. So great, great, great. Thank you for going through this with me. My pleasure. We've covered, I would love to say, a lot of ground about your book, but we haven't. So (laughs) we've talked a lot about it, but there's just so much more in it. So is there anything specifically in your book, 4,000 Weeks, that you really want to punctuate? Something that I didn't ask you? There are sort of a hundred ways into this material. And I think the way we've taken is a really good one. I feel like it's it's been a great conversation. I mean... There are definitely angles to do with the sort of angle of community and how time works in society at large and how we sort of maybe have lost some of the traditions that used to synchronize us as society, as societies. This is a whole sort of field of interest of mine. But, you know, we could go on about this for ages and certainly I can go on about it for ages. So I think I think this is a good place to draw a line under it. All right. Wonderful. It's just in listening to you in this split second I'm reminded of my ninth and 11th grade English teacher, and she had a sign posted right next to the clock, which said, Tempest Fugit. (laughs) And so (laughs) I went home one day, I didn't have the courage to ask her what it meant, but I went home and looked it up, and of course it means time flies. And it was her little joke, like, this class will be over soon enough kind of a thing. But it was also a piece of wisdom that I'm not sure I fully understood. And (laughs) if I were to go back to my high school, like if they ever invited me to come and speak to their students or something and say, okay, like, what did you learn, you know, Mr. Author? You know what I mean? Like, what would it be? Prior to reading your book, it would be, man, this life is awfully fast. It's (laughs) it's really fast. So make of it what you will, right? So, Oliver, thank you so very much for joining us. We really appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Before we go, I want to let you know we have just one more episode to go before we end our season. And if you haven't already done so, please become a subscriber so that new episodes get sent to you directly when our next season launches. If your organization is planning a meeting, by the way, I hope you'll please consider bringing me in as a speaker. And I also invite you to connect with me on Twitter, LinkedIn, and on our Lead from the Heart Facebook page. Our brilliant theme music is the jazz classic Take the A-Train, written by Billy Strayhorn nearly 75 years ago and is performed by the extraordinary BBC Big Band Orchestra. As always, I want to thank my talented and wonderful team, Ken Boynton, Susan DeRoche, Randy Yant, Carrie Finnessy, and my producer, Eric Oz. And I will leave you with my two consistent reminders. When you lead from the heart, your people will follow and love your people. This is Mark C. Crowley thanking you so very much for listening and signing off for now. Mm